0: When I was about 12 years old, I took a class in calligraphy. It was at the Smithsonian, which sounds very fancy, but it wasn't. Anyway, I learned it well enough to address some invitations a few months later and then make some posters look nice, but the longest lasting impact of that class is my lifelong interest in the look of handwriting. We all know that handwriting feels like it's becoming a thing of the past. But pens and pencils really aren't going anywhere anytime soon. But for one of our guests today, the writing he's trying to save could very well disappear if no one intervenes. Tim Brooks is the founder of the Endangered Alphabets Project and author of a new book on his own journey to a life supporting the written word. Plus, Steve Schenken tells us about a heroic story of World War II we might never have heard before. And we'll hear about what life was like 100 years ago for a logger on the Tug Hill Plateau. I'm Mitch Tyke. Northwards is next from NCPR. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show, coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. When my daughter was 11 years old, we took her to the museum the now former museum about journalism and the news business in Washington, D.C. And the exhibit she was most excited to see wasn't the one where you got to be a TV anchor or see the section of the Berlin Wall on display. It was getting to see the Pentagon Papers, the history of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War that was released to the New York Times in 1971 by Daniel Ellsberg. If you are wondering why an 11-year-old girl would be especially interested in the Pentagon Papers, the reason is Steve Schenken, specifically a book Schenken wrote about Ellsberg called Most Dangerous. My daughter is not the only person taken with Schenken's prose. His books, about subjects ranging from Jim Thorpe to Benedict Arnold to the race to build the first atomic bomb, have millions of readers, mainly kids and young adults, but plenty of older readers, too. Schenken, who lives in Saratoga Springs, has a recent book that tells a story of World War II and the Holocaust that most of us have somehow missed. The daring escape by men, one of them a teenager, from the Auschwitz concentration camp, and how their eyewitness account of the camp's mass murder saved the lives of 200,000 Hungarian Jews. Steve Schenken, join us from Saratoga Springs. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Um, so I, I hope you don't mind if we start at the end of this latest book, the the author's note and the hike you made across southern Poland into Slovakia. What did getting to walk in the steps, almost literally walking in the steps of the people that you were writing about mean to your connection with the story?
1: Yeah, it was a huge connection. and I mean, I write nonfiction, so that's obviously means a lot of research and sometimes it involves going places that are in the stories I don't always get the chance to go everywhere but for this one about these uh these young Jews who escaped from Auschwitz and then made this incredible March across southern Poland I said all right I have to do that I would have felt remiss I would have felt as I go out to talk in schools and other places about the book I just felt like I needed to be able to describe that as part of the process of learning, even if it didn't affect a word of the writing, it did, though in subtle ways. Because of course, I can't say that what I saw was exactly what they saw. My experience was nothing. Like anytime I got tired or say, gee, it's hard to walk 20 miles a day, I would laugh at myself and say, yes, you know, this is ridiculous. But seeing that landscape, making that connection, feeling the mountains, the slopes, even just the size of the mountains, allowed me to know it in a, in a much, Deeper way, and I and I think it did affect the writing, if only to enrich my understanding of of that experience, which is at the heart of the story.
0: And I, I gather there's like a whole group of people that that uh, that does this hike
1: every year. So yes, there's a group of people. They've been doing it about ten years, and I just saw it online. It, it looked fairly tiny, and I just said, I just got to go. I, I'm not going to even try to find out too much about it they're doing it i'm going to sign up and go and and yeah there were about i don't know we actually counted off each day that was 32. any slovak speakers out there (laughs) they can check my pronunciation i was 32. so there were like 35 of us and and all from the czech republic and slovakia by the way i was the only american which i didn't i didn't know going in but everyone was very welcoming and yeah, they've been doing this as a way of honoring these very well, I was going to say very famous. They're not very famous. Even in Slovakia, I don't think they're they're very famous. These heroes who escaped from Auschwitz and made the first eyewitness report of what was happening there. So they this is their small way of remembering and honoring that. <laughs>
0: yeah I, I, the 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 people at the heart of this are not that well known how did you get there i mean not not literally how did you travel to to poland and slovakia but but what was it that brought you to the story of rudy Verba and uh and alfred wetzler
1: it's, it's what i do almost all the time it's kind of look for stories i mean i write young adult nonfiction, so you know i'm looking for stories all the time and i'm not literally finding book ideas every day, but I just read with that kind of curiosity in the back of my mind. huh, you know, that notebooks are great for that. you write something down. Rudy Verber's story comes up. it'll be a, there'll be a little bit about it in, in kind of general books about the Holocaust sometimes. I mean, there's so much to say, he might not make it in. But he also shows up sometimes on the list of the greatest escapes of all times. And that's something that just catches my eye. As a fan of true stories, I've always loved, give me an escape tunnel, you know, something with the Berlin Wall. I love that kind of stuff. And, and his story shows up there and I it piqued my curiosity. Even as a Jewish kid, I, I never heard this story as a kid. It would have meant a lot to me as a teenager. I mean, how many times can you read about Sandy Koufax? <laughs> you know, but I never heard of it. So, you know, it's, you hear of it one, once, it kind of simmers away and you hear it again and you start to say, I'm going to look that up. And so yeah it really just began with all i knew all right here's a teenager who survived nearly two years in auschwitz which was almost unheard of and escaped all the while he was dreaming of and planning trying to figure out a way to get out of this death camp but beyond that it wasn't just about survival it was about telling the world what he had seen and that was just such a remarkable story and the fact that he did all of that before his 20th birthday I knew that there was something there that would fit what I do, which is narrative nonfiction for for teenagers. Yeah, aside
0: from the fact that that your primary audience is teenagers, why do you think this specific story uh, is so important for them to understand at this point in in time?
1: I mean, it's an important part of history. There are, and you can say that about many parts of history that are, that aren't as well known as they should be. But what I found, I've I've gone to some schools already the book's pretty new but i've been to some middle schools and high schools and if i begin by saying okay this is the main character in this book is a 17 year old who is thrown into and then escaped from a nazi concentration camp that's already a little deep into the story for some most students and it's not their fault that they haven't learned about this part of world war ii or if they had it was a sentence in a textbook maybe and I, by the way, I should I should confess I used to write history textbooks, so I know <laughs> that even if it were in there, nobody would remember it because the books are so boring. <laughs> they don't really teach anything, at least not to me as a kid. So the best way to to introduce this big piece of history, which is important for everyone to know, is through a story. That's my that's my approach. So if you have what is an incredibly engaging, exciting, high stakes survival and escape story what a great way to tell a piece of true history hopefully you get hooked on the story and the characters and you even forget it's uh non-fiction necessarily it could be it could be a novel it could be a movie but you're drawn along in the story and then by the end you realize wow look at all this look at all this information that i learned so that that's basically what I try to do with all my books.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, do you, do you worry in a story like this, given what was at stake and given what you're writing about? Uh, is, is, do you feel, ever feel, do, do you feel
1: guilty about about making it too exciting? I've thought about that, actually. And, and normally, of course, that's what I try to do if I'm writing about a Cold War spy story yeah. or the making of the atomic bomb. Or <laughs> There's no such thing as too exciting, especially, as we said, with history where some students have already been beaten over the head by these textbooks. <laughs> and, oh, no, I don't want to read... I thought about that. I did. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure what the exact right answer is, but I, I also just feel like sometimes there are true stories that you just don't want to embellish. And, and my language, I'm not a wordsmith necessarily. I mean, I'm very straightforward in the way I tell the story, and I feel like it doesn't need any fancying up. His story, just as it is, is... it's It's what editors... Every writer will have heard this from an editor. You've got to raise the stakes. You've got to put obstacles in front of your character. You've got to create more danger for them to overcome and with Rudy you really don't I mean you really don't just tell the story so the excitement in it is is from him it's what he did It's what he was up against and the fact that not only did he not give up um, but his escape plan this is what this to me is the most remarkable part of the story because he was still a teenager it wasn't just about surviving. Of course, he wanted to survive. And he had already escaped from another Nazi camp before this. But he evolved over those those two years to to take on a much, much bigger mission, which was to tell the world. He couldn't possibly know what the world knew or didn't know from within the camp. But he was determined to, to make this really detailed eyewitness account. So I feel like there's that page turning excitement in it. Yes, I do want that. But I don't think it belittles or trivializes in any way what he did. At least I hope not.
0: Maybe the, maybe the, the pretext of the question was wrong because you didn't make it exciting. It just it, it was inherently exciting.
1: That's, that's what I think. I, and I think that's right, because sometimes, like we say, the story is just, is just so great. I don't take any credit for that. I mean, did a lot of research. I hopefully wrote it in a, in a way that's very clear and, and fast paced. But it's the story is the star.
0: You talked about how Rudy had already escaped from one Nazi camp, and, and now he'd been at Auschwitz for for two years, which I think in the language of the camp made him an ancient prisoner, as you described it. Um, I wouldn't call what he had going for him good fortune, but he does seem
1: to really use his wits in a way that's, that's remarkable. Yeah, you realize – you read that in any account of anyone who survived. For any length of time in a camp like that you need such a combination of things every day and one of those things is good luck but you're right also this resourcefulness you need to learn the rules really fast anything can get you killed at any moment so you need to learn what those things are and how to stay basically stay out of out of the way how to not be noticed and and he learned that really quickly he was young and strong which of course really helped but yeah, there's luck involved. That The other element is you, at some point, you're gonna need someone to step in and save your life. And and that has to happen multiple times because you're going to get sick at some point. You're gonna be starving at some point. You're gonna attract attention from a guard in the wrong way at some point, And you're gonna need those little bits of someone else stepping in and also luck too. And so, yeah, he had this he, determination to do what he ended up succeeding in doing but there was definitely it was definitely not determined you know there was no set path to that he needed to get lucky in a lot of a lot of ways a lot of times and he was he was the first to to describe those instances in his own his own writing
0: yeah. So what was the turning point for him? Why did Rudy know at a certain point that he had to actually figure out the time and the means to escape when really no one else had, had figured it out at this point? You know, so many people had been kind of uh, had these brilliant ideas and to a man, uh, they were all brought back dead and made an example of.
1: Yeah. He saw other people, friends of his even try to escape. And that's caught them and brought, yet, like you say, brought the bodies back, put them on display in a very gruesome way to discourage any attempts. So he knew that the plan had to be incredibly good. And again, this is one of those things that this is kind of a, if you were making a movie of it, there would be that moment when he finds a plan, you know, and that again came from several people. He met a Russian prisoner who gave him invaluable advice about what to do, both before and after if, if there isn't after getting out of this hellhole, what what do you do on the outside? But also just again, keeping his eyes open, thinking all the time. He had a lot of ideas that he realized weren't going to work. And and eventually had this counterintuitive realization that because of the way the prisoners were held in this inner perimeter during the night and in this outer perimeter during the day, and the way the guards moved back and forth and they were constantly being counted all the time, accounted for, that the, the only way to do it would be to escape from the inner perimeter and then stay within the outer perimeter for three days while they searched until they were convinced that, ah, the guys must have died somewhere and we didn't notice. And then, only then would it be possible to get out of the outer perimeter gate after they essentially stopped looking for you. And that's just, again, that would be a beautiful thing to put in an action movie because it's so interesting and exciting. But then how do you do that? How do you stay inside a camp with thousands of guards and, and trained dogs looking for you? Let's
0: talk about the implications of the escape and, and how they how they relate to this other parallel story you tell of Goethe.
1: Yes. And the, the parallel story of, of Goethe was really important to me. They He and Rudy, she and Rudy grew up together in this tiny town. in Well, it wasn't a tiny, a small town in Slovakia. And... And he was two years older than her, which was a big difference back when you're 14 and 12. It was a big difference. And she (laughs) kind of had a crush on him and he liked her, but didn't think of her that way at that age. And so her story was fascinating because when the Nazis began rounding up at first young men and sending them off to who knows where, but they claimed it was something to do with working for the war, doing your part for the war effort. Of course, Rudy and and Goethe were separated at that point and had... Very different experiences over those next couple of years, but her story was was very very useful because it allowed me to show another experience of this. And she had many twists and turns and close calls, living on, in disguise, slipping back and forth across borders, eventually joining a resistance movement, eventually being arrested by the Gestapo. So it showed another angle on the story. But also, this is just a this is useful as a storyteller that she had access to news. She could listen to not just Nazi sources of news but maybe a BBC broadcast, something like that. And then finally, what brings it all full circle, quite literally, is is them meeting again near the end of the war in Bratislava, in Slovakia, after Rudy had escaped and she, Goethe, was was living there as well, still in hiding. And a friend of, the, of theirs said, you wouldn't believe who I just saw. So their story comes together again at the end in a way that if you put it in a... Hollywood blockbuster it would be just too much. You say, ah, they're trying to tie everything together. It's, <laughs> it's, you're going too far. But it's really what happened.
0: Well, and, and moreover, there's this connection to Hungary, and and Rudy's escape has, uh, has essentially, meant that there are hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews that don't suffer the same
1: fate as so many people that he's seen. Yes, and that was very, I mean, clearly his goal. It wasn't just something that happened. He did get enough snippets of news to know that. The nazis had invaded hungary he could see what was happening within the camp they were building literally building railroad tracks up to the crematorium buildings with the gas chambers in it for the hungarian jews and he could figure that out from within the camp and that is exactly when he escaped and that news got out although he always felt too slowly much too slowly but it did reach the western media the newspapers in london and then washington and you could read the articles in the New York Times. They never mentioned his name. No one knew his name at that time. But you can see that ah, this came from, it could only have come from Rudy and Alfred and their report that they made. It describes eyewitness accounts. And that put pressure on, in turn, President Roosevelt and Churchill to turn to the Hungarians and say, We're going to hold you accountable. If this is true, we're going to hold you accountable for this. And at that point, luckily for the Jews who are still alive in Hungary, the last really big population of jews that were still alive because the nazis had already started deporting them but the allies were winning the war at that point and not only that already bombing budapest it was clear to the hungarian rulers who was going to win this war and they were of course afraid of hitler but at that point they were they they realized they maybe should be more afraid of the the u.s air force i don't want to be too cynical about it but that of course had had a big part in their decision to to stop the deportation but Historians do think they saved about 200,000 lives.
0: Rudy himself um, passed away in 2006, so, so you could not speak to him in writing this story, but you did speak to one of his colleagues at the University of British Columbia. Why, why was that conversation so important to the conclusion of this
1: book? That in particular, because I saw that this fellow professor from Canada, and Rudy went on to have a very long, rich, complex life, I, I mean, my story ends when he's 20. You know, a long way to go. But but I found that this guy had not only known Rudy, but had done a lot of talks with him, and they were both Holocaust survivors and did a lot of education and talks to at schools. So really, I, what I wanted to know was, what did Rudy say at the end of his talks? What was his takeaway? What did he say? All right, and finally, here's what I want you to think as you go back to your lives, because I thought that would be a nice way to end, tell the readers what he, what was his Takeaway because he used every opportunity he could to tell his story and to challenge Holocaust deniers and and but mostly just to to educate young people. And this Dr. Krell, this man I talked to, said almost gruffly, said, Rudy didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't do your work for you. That was the exact quote. He would say, I told you the story. It's all in the story, and that you know what to do, and really trust the people who had heard, the young people who had heard the story, that yes, they would know. What to do. and so that is how I end. That's literally how I end the book with that little anecdote and those words because it's exactly what he Rudy would have would have wanted as that closing message. Do, do
0: you feel like uh, this this career of writing narrative nonfiction is in some way atoning for your career as a uh, as a that's, history book writer?
1: That's exactly my goal. When I go to schools, it's always the first thing I say. And more and more, I don't know if it's anecdotal, but I think more and more schools are, are not using textbooks as heavily as we probably did, you know, in our back in our day, <laughs> which is a good thing. So hopefully I am atoning for that. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, Steve Schenken, you've certainly atoned for it in my mind. And yeah, uh, now I'm going to go. Uh, I, I still have to read the back catalog that's on my daughter's
1: bookshelf. All right. OK, we can. Uh, I'll wait here and you can come back when, when you're done. We'll. We'll speak again. Steve Schenken's latest book is called Impossible Escape, A True Story of
0: Survival and Heroism in Nazi Europe. Schenken, who lives in Saratoga Springs, is the author of numerous other books for mainly young adults, plus the author and illustrator of several graphic novels, and way back when was a writer for history textbooks that you or your kids may have disliked. You can see photos from his hike through Poland and Slovakia following the footsteps of Rudy Verba at ncpr.org slash northwards. Keep listening. We'll take a quick break and then an update on Tim Brooks' effort to keep endangered writing systems from disappearing. This is Northwards from the studios of North Country Public Radio.
2: NCPR's Northwards is supported by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center and its surgical services team performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures. ClaxtonHepburn.org And by the book notes an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.
0: More of Northwards Now. I'm Mitch Tyke We first spoke with Tim Brooks a couple of years ago about an installation at the Wadhams Free Library that was one part art and one part meditation on writing systems that are disappearing around the world. It's writing that, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you might not have recognized as writing at all. Now, though, the founder of the Endangered Alphabets Project has a new book, which just came out recently, called Writing Beyond Writing. And it's anything but a dry discussion of language and writing systems. Instead, it describes Brooks' own path to what his work is about today. Tim Brooks made the journey to the NCPR studios in Canton recently. Thanks for
3: coming by. <laughs> I very much appreciate you laying on a snowstorm just for my benefit. <laughs> so th- this latest book of yours, um, you wouldn't necessarily imagine it from the title, but it, it kind of describes a personal journey, doesn't it? Um, it really does. And um, it's I-, I say it's part travelogue, part essay, part crusade. I have this kind of um, vision of... 19th century explorers (laughs) club in in new york you know where somebody has been out to i don't know um southeast asia or indonesia or or somewhere in africa and when they come back the explorers club um says come and give us a talk you know maybe with a magic lantern show as well (laughs) and bring the skull that you brought back (laughs) from the endangered rhino (laughs) exactly And um, so for the last 12 plus years, I've essentially been traveling virtually around the world, um, discovering the many, many um, scripts or writing systems that are used by especially minority and indigenous cultures around the world. And all of the material for that, which is specifically about these um, these scripts, why they're endangered, what their culture is like, why these are so fascinating and so culture-specific. So that has all gone into the online Atlas of Endangered Alphabets. But what I really imagined was kind of giving this magic lantern show and then somebody um, saying, okay, all very well. But what have you learned about writing itself from this journey? And so um, in that sense, it is a travelogue, but it also is an essay in the sense that, you know, an essay is where you you ask yourself questions. And in particular, as some of your listeners know, I do these carvings. I, I find these scripts and I carve them in wood. And I, I finished one. This is probably three or four years ago now, and I put it up on social media and a very distinguished linguist posted this response which was this is very nice but it isn't writing and i was i was really taken aback by the dismissive tone of his voice and that made me think like well what is writing anyway and that led me onto this extraordinary journey where i discovered not only is the definition of writing one that has been um, not only put together but carried uh, by Western thinkers. But the the definition of writing explicitly excludes all kinds of writing-like forms that are used by other cultures around the world, many of which are more beautiful than our writing form or more elegant or more self-explanatory or more spiritual. And that was when it really started becoming a journey which was both outward and inward. What is going on out there? And also, what is the experience of writing? You know, having spent all my life as a writer, I'm like, but I never even thought about this stuff. And and then I started asking the, the big questions. Well, and, and it's interesting, the, the
0: Explorers Club metaphor it got me thinking, you know, I think we think we, you know, we wonder, you know, who are the people who are majoring in geography today? Because every place has already been seen and discovered and and can be mapped from space. Um, and you can pull up on your phone, for God's sake. And I feel like we probably think that way about writing. But, but to read this book,
3: writing has been really understudied. Very much so. In fact, uh, one of the things that I... Uh, did for, as part of this research was to try and find out how come if you go back to the nineteenth century, you find people such as Abraham Lincoln, for example, speaking about writing as an art form, recognizing the value of writing as um, a as a crucial element in human development, and and yet. Um, If you go to any university catalogue and you look up linguistics, there are probably 30 different courses on extraordinarily specific aspects of spoken language and nothing about writing. And it turns out that when linguistics was born as a discipline, which is the very early 20th century in particular, what it had to do was essentially kill the old king so the old king was a pretty repulsive person, to be perfectly honest, because this was a set of attitudes that said, writing is what makes us superior to other cultures that don't have it. It's racist. It's colonial. It's, it's pretty horrible. And the great advantage of studying spoken language is that everybody speaks Language, a language, etc., and so in that sense, it was very democratic. But essentially, they threw the baby out with the bathwater and uh, and sort of exiled writing as a function of the the old regime, and it has never come back.
0: Can you put into words what it is that feels so right about channeling this this interest? In,
3: in alphabets and scripts into wood carving? So that's exactly the kind of question that I asked myself when I was writing the book. And in fact, I'm really glad you asked that question because, because there are a lot of woodworkers now who follow me. <laughs> and they recognize that there is something about the act of shaping letters and also the act of getting inside a piece of wood that is very different from writing on a piece of paper on a flat surface. Right, because
0: you could have just gotten into calligraphy. You could have, you could have, you know,
3: your your whole collection of nibs laid out in front <laughs> of you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, um, yes. So, the first thing I discovered about um, carving letters is that you have to slow right down. And so there's part of me and probably part of a lot of people who in their mind are trying to go as fast as they can. And they're going, (laughs) you know, part of their mind sounds like, you know, high speed Morse code on the shortwave, you know. (laughs) And when you're carving, first of all, you have to slow right down because otherwise you're going to make mistakes or you're going to stick the carving tool through your hand. Secondly, If you're gonna carve a nice, smooth curve, and for reasons that have to do with the way in which writing has grown up, writing in many scripts in the world is made up of nice, smooth curves, then actually what happens is that it's a whole body exercise. So you actually lean into the curve, and if you're not doing it, kind of as I'm doing right now in this chair, you know, (laughs) I'm slowly swiveling in the chair, like from the hips up, then that curve is either going to be jagged or it's going to be ugly or whatever. So it becomes almost meditative and you become grateful to the wood, not only for making it look nice, but for what the wood is doing to you as a kind of a meditation. And that's why my favorite times for carving are late at night. You know, it's it's this wonderful kind of slow down, slow down, do something you're proud of before you go to sleep.
0: It seems like a key part of the crusade is getting people to understand that the word evolution when it comes, when it's applied to writing is the wrong term. Why, why is
3: that? Ooh, so... Yes, you've asked that question because I spend several pages in the book absolutely trashing <laughs> that term. And the reason is this. So let's go back, say, 200 years when the privileged cultures – Um, feel and and believe that they are privileged because they have not only writing but the writing of the ancient Greeks you know it's like we've inherited their depth of culture their understanding of science and philosophy therefore we are the chosen people (laughs) very explorers club of them oh absolutely (laughs) yes so they proposed a view of writing which was that, hmm, we've gone out to Africa, we've gone to Central America, we see these other forms of writing which are more graphic or pictorial or whatever, and we regard these people as simpletons, as savages, as primitive, as childish, in fact. And therefore, there must be a form of evolution in culture that is paralleled by a form of evolution in writing. Now, they had no evidence for this whatsoever, but um, they were nevertheless quite happy to expound that this must, must have happened and that writing must have started with pictograms because... Primitive people can only draw pictures. And therefore, it must have evolved into um, ideograms, which is um, characters that stand for thoughts or ideas, or and then kind of backwards forms of writing like syllabaries and abugidas, and then finally the pinnacle, the, 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 the Roman or Latin uh, the, alphabet. The letter E. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and the letter E, which you chose specifically because I talk about the fact that it's it's you know it has these uh, parallels. It has these right angles. It's very upright. It's very Roman, in fact, in its in its its fashion. And in fact, this is so nonsensical that while I was writing the book, writing beyond writing, lessons from endangered alphabets, I came across this article in Scientific American, which talked about the fact that um, a team of scientists. Um, working in Europe had been looking at, in fact, some of these very ancient pictures. And these are cave drawings um, from Lascaux um, and Chauvet and all of those other, and, and many other uh, caves throughout um, Southern Europe. And when people had looked at these, their conclusion was one, um, they're, they're drawing because they're not civilized enough to write. Two, They must be drawing these things as a way of teaching their children, you know, this is a bison, you know, you should attack it with a spear or or other things like this. And the fact is we have absolutely no idea why they they drew these scenes. But what this team of scientists discovered was that around these um, beautifully executed 30,000-year-old paintings, which are way better than anything I can do, (laughs) there were these little marks. And because they were little marks, they were ignored. And this very smart set of um, researchers correlated individual marks with the breeding seasons of the animals being portrayed on the walls. And they found that these marks were in fact a form of calendar. So all of a sudden you kind of go, oh, wait a second, these people, are so smart that they've actually been studying the breeding cycles of animals and they've thought to sort of represent them on cave walls so that they've got a timeline as to how they should plan out their year. And that was 30,000 years ago. So the notion that these are unevolved people and that we're evolved people is simply a way for us to... A pat ourselves on the back and B justify our vestigial racist and colonial attitudes that we are of course superior to other people.
0: Would you imagine that the popularization of emojis is a way that the that the Latin script has begun to change and encompass more ideas than than the letters
3: themselves? See, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so if you go back a couple of thousand years, um, what you discover is that in ancient Greece and in a number of other cu- cultures since then, there is no difference between writing, what we call writing, and what we call drawing. That they're, they're really seen as being the same thing. And in divination calendars and, and magical um, um, uh, texts. They're a combination of, of, of what we call writing and art. So over those centuries, this kind of lofty um, snobbery, especially associated with the Latin alphabet, came to, to divide those two streams. And in doing so, what that did, and again, this is one of my discoveries in writing this book, it cut out a whole range of things that you might actually want to communicate. So, if, for example, you have a really complex emotion or a really profound emotion, you may say, I can't put it in words. And the fact is, writing as we see it is specifically an effort to represent speech, what you would have said out loud but what about all the other things that you couldn't say out loud and that might be expressed in painting or in music or in dance? Or even in nonverbal communication. Absolutely the case, yes. And you start realizing, wait a second, writing is only one small part of that, or writing as we define it. And in other cultures, it's a much richer and, and broader part that includes more things. And so, as you say the sudden and massive popularization of emojis is in part because an emoji allows you to present a complex emotional state in one keystroke that the person reading it almost certainly understands instantly and there are many emojis that if I were to say to you, okay can you put into words what that face means, it would take 10 words or 20 words or a whole lot. Well, Tim Brooks, best of luck in your work. I'm so appreciative that you invited me here and I just love what you do. Tim
0: Brooks's new book is called Writing Beyond Writing Lessons from Endangered Alphabets. It came out on Tuesday, which was World Endangered Writing Day. There is a link to more about the book at ncpr.org northwards. Some of his endangered alphabet wood carvings are also on display at the Wadhams Free Library in Wadhams, New York. One more break, and then the life and times of a man known as Old Lard. This is Northwards from NCPR.
2: Northwards on NCPR is supported by Samaritan's Advanced Wound Care Center, Watertown, offering comprehensive wound care services, including hyperbaric chamber therapy, and now accepting new patients. Learn more at samaritanhealth.com slash services. You can subscribe to the Northwards podcast and have a new interview delivered to your mobile device or computer each week. Learn how at ncpr.org slash northwards.
0: It's Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. My son has a high school English project coming up for which he has to interview someone who did something interesting in the past and write a profile of them. He has chosen me, even though I am still trying to dissuade him since I think there are far more interesting people he could write about But there was the time I announced my presidential campaign when I was 15, and the election I was targeting was 28 years away, and I was interviewed on the Today Show, and, well, I guess I do have a story to tell. In fact, Leona Cherunovsky and her son Peter would say that everyone has something interesting in their past. They are the keepers of some remarkable family archives, most of which tell the story of Leona's grandfather. His birth certificate carried the name John Clemens, but many, or maybe even most people, knew him as Old Lard. Clemens was a logger on the Tug Hill Plateau in the first half of the 20th century, and late in life, he wrote a series of letters about his experiences. Spun some yarns, you might say, to a Syracuse radio host who read them over the air over the course of a decade. These days, Leona and Peter, in addition to maintaining the old lard bed and breakfast in Osceola, have hung on to the letters along with some remarkable artifacts from old lard's life. They first joined us in January of 2021 to share some stories. Welcome.
4: We're glad to be here.
0: Uh, Leona, tell us about your grandfather, where he came from, what his life was like in a family of 14.
4: Okay. He he lived all his life in Osceola. He was born here in and stayed here all his life. He was a good grandfather, great, great grandfather. He was humorous and fun to be around. If you ask him for a pancake at breakfast, he might throw it at you. His life was not easy, but in childhood, he he said he was well fed and clothed, even in a big family, which was really huge by today's standards. In his work years logging, he was rather gruff, I believe, to the workers under him. He got his nickname from a young man who took umbrage to his outburst.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and his nickname was? Old Lard. <laughs> Old Lard Clemens. And it was
4: rather heavy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so it did not start out as a term
4: of endearment. No, no, not at all. But he grew to love it. He, he did enjoy it. He loved having people call him that so he was
0: gruff as a logger was he gruff as a grandfather
4: he wasn't gruff at all as a grandfather he he wasn't gruff at all I think in his younger year my father did the same thing they kind of mellowed out as they grew older and by the time I I knew him well he was he was pretty gentle
0: uh, and he was born was it 1886 yes For as rural as the region is now, I can only imagine what it must have been like uh, living in a place like Osceola in 1886.
4: Well, to tell you the truth, by 1900, there were over a thousand people living here. I don't think it says that anywhere in his letters, but that was the case. It was really a pretty bustling community because everybody that worked in the woods lived somewhere outside of the woods you know he called it the clearings the clearings yeah.
0: <laughs> well and, and, and the work of loggers in those days in, in reading his letters this, this wasn't just about taking down trees to turn them into into timber this was uh, this was also about um, harvesting spruce gum is that right?
4: Yes yeah uh, I think it must have started about the time they came. The Peter Clements family came to Osceola in 1852 from Westernville, New York. And I think it might have started about that time. I'm not, I certainly don't know whether that's what brought them here. I know they were subsistence farmers. I think when they got here, they discovered the spruce gum and it was sold at 50 cents a pound. So that was a lot of money.
0: That was a lot of money in those but, days.
4: As my son will attest to, spruce gum is not easy to pick, and it doesn't add up very fast, at least the spruce gum we have now. So um, he went out and tried to find some of it, and, and he was successful, but, you know, it, it's quite a job.
0: Right. What what does it take to, uh, to, to pick spruce gum?
4: Well, now you can just pick it off the tree.
0: <laughs> but in those days, what it, what did they have to do? And you talk about you know a pound of it being uh, worth fifty cents. What was that kind of work? What what had to go into uh, to to bringing that back?
4: They had a tool, and we have we have one of them, a tool that was put on a pole and run up the trees, and it just chipped the chipped the spruce gum off the tree, and I don't know. I guess deposited in a bag on the end of the tool. Um, We're not quite sure about how the bag thing worked out, but I've always assumed that it was a canvas bag, but I don't know that for sure. They had to go into the woods and live for a week at a time. And it was a lot of work to do that. And it was always in the winter because that's when the spruce gum forms. It was in the winter. So you had to put up with the conditions in the wintertime. Of course, when they brought it home, they dumped it on the table, and guess who cleaned it up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably not the people who picked it, huh? Oh, no,
4: not the people who
0: picked it. <laughs> when, when did these letters between <laughs> Old Lard and uh, Deacon Doubleday begin, and, and how did they, uh, how did they start, happen to start corresponding?
4: Well, the deacon had a radio studio at I think it was WFBL in Syracuse and in the studio, there were bells, people, he always rang a cowbell to start out his program in the morning. So he had bells that people sent him from all over and he had them all, if you see a picture of the studio, you'll see all the bells hanging around. Well, my grandfather was working in, I think it was probably 1947 up in a place we call Little John Tract. And he had a log camp for the winter. My grandmother was the cook. And they found a bell. And he sent it to the deacon and made some remark about swapping slack jaw. You know, if you're interested in swapping slack jaw, and he said to write to him. So the deacon wrote to him and said he would be glad to get more information about the woods and, and all the characters and all the name calling and all that kind of stuff. So they started that correspondence that went on for almost I think ten years.
0: Well and and in a way he was becoming kind of a historian, it sounds like
4: he was. It was it was it was really remarkable. He had a fourth grade education. And I know that my mother did the typing on the letters, so she probably corrected a lot of stuff, but the stories are his, and and she, she put them down just as he said them. He was rather careful about the language, though, because he knew, he understood it was the radio, and he had to temper down some of the things he might have said.
0: I appreciate your being careful with the language here today. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any insight into, into why he was so interested in telling these stories to, to someone who could share them on the radio?
4: Well, he loved, he loved to just sit and remember anyway, and I think he knew that this way of life wasn't going to last, and I think he wanted to have people know what it was like, and it was fun for him. It was enjoyable. And in, the, in those years, he had a lot of medical problems, but he still kept working until probably 1951. He didn't work like he had when he was younger, and I think it was just a great source of amusement for him.
0: Pete, what does having this record of your great-grandfather's life mean to you and your family?
1: Well, for me, I, I was raised on Tug Hill my whole life, and I... And I and I thought I knew a lot about Tug Hill, but uh, reading these letters has, has taught me so much more about Tug Hill that I didn't know. Some of it I knew, but didn't know details. And that's what's great about the letters. He really, he really. when he gets into a, a subject, he gives you the details. And and so for me, it's, it's, um, it's not only about where I live, but it's about my, my heritage, you know? So that's what's, that's what it is for me.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's it's really not just keeping him alive, but keeping a whole way of life alive. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Does it surprise you that other people are interested in these letters and these stories about about your family?
4: No, and if if you could see the, the scrapbooks themselves, you'd see, well, of course, this is back in the day, a lot of people would send him letters or there'd be articles in the paper talking about Tug Hill logging and um, I think it was an interest even then, but since those days have gone, um, I think I think there are people, and especially those that remember that kind of life, would be interested. But their children, um, if you've ever had a an older person talk to you about the old days, you know you might be interested in something like this. I think maybe. One big thing, of course, is my my family, my extended family. We have a Clemens reunion every year, and it's been going on for 100 years, since 1918. So I know all those people are going to be interested in it. And they know about the letters because we always bring them out for the reunion. Um, but now, Tug Hill is a popular place to be. I think this is gonna be amazing to people to find out what went on and that the trails they ride on were the trails my grandfather worked on. You know, a lot of the trails are the same, same place and the old Glenfield and Western Railroad that went up on the hill is a big snowmobile trail. That's very popular. If you talk to any snowmobiler, they'll know where that is. So I think they'll all be interested.
0: Amazing to think about what it would have been like on those trails a hundred years ago.
4: Right, right. No no tractors, no motorized vehicles at all. You know, there was, except that train that finally came up there. And that that was a big challenge.
0: I think at the end of the day, I, I wonder if people also, from watching the two of you talk about Old Lard's life, John's life, uh, they might start thinking a little more closely about their own family and the places that they came from.
4: Well, I think probably nobody thinks theirs is very important. You know, my kids say to me, you should write that down, mom. And I, you know, it, it doesn't compare to my grandfather's stuff at all. But my parents did remarkable things in their lives and one of the remarkable things they did was to to save all this and make sure we knew how important it was so that's that's something that you can do even if you don't think your information is very important you can you can show other people what is important you know to you absolutely
0: well uh, leona and Pete Chernosky, I I hope someday there is someone who does a presentation about your lives as well.
4: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Leona Chernosky and her son, Pete, maintain the story and the archives of Leona's grandfather, John Old Lard Clemens, an early 20th century logger on the Tug Hill Plateau. Leona also runs the Old Lard Bed and Breakfast in Osceola. Our interview with them first aired in January of 2021 that wraps up the january 2024 edition of northwards digital oversight of the show comes from ethan shanty and bill hanel caitlin kelly does our social media doyle dean shoots video our theme music is by the wickmore jazz trio of plattsburgh and i'm mitch tyke your host and producer and don't forget you can subscribe to the northwards podcast and get new interviews delivered to you every week on spotify apple amazon or possibly even your toaster Have a great weekend and keep listening here and now. Science Friday and the Beat Authority are all on the way right here on North Country Public Radio.